We're looking tonight at the Christmas word rejected and received as we're making our way through John's prologue, probably one of the greatest portions of the New Testament available to us. We're looking especially in verses 10 through 13 as we uh, make our way through this portion. As the star of Bethlehem matches the Christmas word being the light of man, as we saw this morning, so the innkeeper's no vacancy sign to Jesus and to his parents um, fit and match with Christ coming into the world and his not being received and welcomed and known, rather being rejected by the world and rejected by his people. There's a double rejection here in verses 10 and 11, being in the world, the world was made through him, the world did not know him. Coming to his own, those who were his own did not receive him. Then there's a double aspect to the reception. As many as received him, they are given the right to become the children of God to those who believe, and they are born of God by the will of God. The question, of course, is which are we? Are we those who have room for Jesus? How can anybody not make room for the Son of God who has come into this world. Heaven has uh, reached down and given us the Lord's hand to receive salvation, and yet that hand is smacked away in unbelief. How sad for even one person not to lay hold upon the Redeemer, especially as he was with God and was God, the Creator and the life, the light of the world, the conqueror of darkness, which we have covered so far. Without this one, what are we? What is man without the gifts that we find in this wonderful chapter? We are godless. We are creatorless. We are lifeless and hopeless, and we are in darkness. And today we learn how lost we are without him. We have no part of the family of God. We are not children of God, but rather children of the wicked one, as Ephesians chapter 2 says. No family of God, no regenerative life by a new spirit, which leads us to cry, Abba, Father. Why ought there be room? Why ought there to be room for Jesus, the Word made flesh? Well, just very quickly, because all the Old Testament, culminating in this predicted messenger, John, heralds that good news. God used mighty instruments to call sinners out of darkness and to embrace a Savior long ago promised us. And what a voice is found in true preaching when people are opening Scripture and and presenting that truth. John was so powerful that some thought that he was the Christ, and he had to deflect that and to, um, to remind them that he is not that one, that he had to decrease But there was one in their midst that was before him whose shoe he was not worthy to untie. He introduced the world to her God. He introduced the Jew to his Savior. And ultimately, he sealed his witness with his blood by being beheaded for the word. The use of the word of God being preached is the central means that God employs And that's what the world needs to hear again, like the tenants in America back in the colonial period or the Wesleys in England or Whitfield, who was in both, going back and forth over the Atlantic, what, nine times, ten times, something like that? 
We need sons of thunder again as something that we should be praying for, to call men out of their darkness, out of the holes of the earth. I think of the first time that Whitfield preached outdoors. It was to miners, and he got himself on a hill, and as they were coming out of the holes of the earth, covered in, in the soot that they were working in, he preached to them the text in Matthew chapter 5, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. And it had such an impact upon them, they were led to weep over their sins and their need of the Savior that you could actually see the proof as their tears made gullies on their cheeks because the word of God had effect through the preaching of that truth. So all should receive him because because of how the whole Bible culminates in this message to us. It all points in this direction. All should receive the word as he's offered on such simple and easy terms. God has not sent out an army of of men uh, or women to, to call people to do some great deeds to earn eternal life. Not at all. It is by preaching, making a declaration of the love of the Father that is found in the Son. And the answer is simply to believe, to receive this gift. Verse 7 says that he was a witness to the light that all might believe. And why is salvation then by faith? So that it might be by grace. It's not something that you and I can ever possibly earn or deserve. This is the loving means to invite the world to come. And that incites our eager reception. And then thirdly and briefly, John testified of Christ as the true light in 8 and 9. That is that Jesus is the real, genuine fullness of light for man's darkness. People should receive Jesus the light of their salvation because he is the light of those who have been saved. John was a man sent from God. He was equipped by God. He was, as it were, regenerate from the womb. And like him, we have tasted and seen these things, and we turn from the riches that we have had and given to us, and we present those riches to our neighbor, to those who are perishing, who need to hear the gospel. Many were awed by John's messages. Even his enemies counted him a prophet. The godly of this world commend the reception of Jesus to uh, unbelievers. Whatever inconsistencies or failures there are in the church, and there are many, there are those whose lives that you can write on the skies without blushing. And you see there the work of grace. All Christians have something of a follow me as I follow Jesus about them. So all of this is is tying in with the reception of Jesus as the word at Christmas. The word has come as life and light to be received. He's enlightened all history, as we touched on this morning in verse 9, to enlighten every man through his coming. He who made the world entered the world he made to be known and to be received in verse 10. And then he came to his own, that special people raised up by God, in Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Why? So that he would be received. The whole focus of Christ's entrance into this world is that he might be welcomed. And that's the whole purpose of John's gospel. At John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. These things I have written so that you may believe on the name of the Son of God, and believing upon him, you may have life in his name. Doesn't it seem to you that the Son of God seems more willing to come to this world, to sinful men, to this dark planet, 
than men are to come to him, the all-loving Redeemer sent from heaven to bring us to heaven. We are a sinful people. We are a hell-bent people. And we need the mercy of God. So we ask the question tonight, how can he not be received? And received by all, received truly and genuinely, received um, immediately upon hearing him offer salvation, received fully, embraced with our whole heart, and received uh, with finality. This is my Lord. I set him before me. I receive him heartily and fully. So we begin in verse 10 tonight here with the rejection by the world out of ignorance. He was in the world, the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. The cosmos is the product of the word, of his word, of his light, of his life, and yet the world did not know him. This is the amazing state of reality of this creation, that the creature may live and move and have his being entirely dependent upon God and entirely ignorant of the God upon whom they fully depend. There's a knowledge of God that's being suppressed, of course, but people don't know this God, and they reject this God. We act like the brute matter or the brute beast, which does not know its maker. And think of the lines that open the great book of Isaiah. Listen, O heavens, and hear, O earth, for the Lord speaks. Sons I have reared and brought up, but they have revolted against me. An ox knows its owner, and a donkey its master's manger. But Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Now, if Israel could be in that state, and they had the book, how much more the Gentiles who did not? They don't know their own maker. Oxen and cattle are in a better position than sinful man. But here comes Jesus as maker and creator. He came as God, the God of light and life. As a light, he would transform this darkness to light. What is impure to pure, what is defiled to holiness, what is false to true, and what is wrong to righteousness. And as a fountain of life, both natural and saving life, everything comes from him. And he comes to give that life, life eternal and life more abundant. He has come into this world that we might know him, that everybody might know him, that he might be received and believed to be the giver of this wonder of a change, as the text says later, to become children of God and to be born of God. We are made to know God. And since the fall, men continue to know God in a sinful, suppressive, kind of a, well, we have to know him kind of way. But we are ignorant of him profoundly. We are not naturally knowers of God, believers in God, or children of God in the highest sense of that word. We studied this in our book, Christianity and Liberalism, where the liberals were trying to say, everybody's a child of God, and everybody has God as their father. And everybody who lives in love is going to heaven. Dear ones, a change must take place. Let us move on to his own then from the world in verse 10 to verse 11, that he came to his own and those who were his own did not receive him. Here is the rejection by Israel. He came to the special people who were set apart for the very reason of bringing the Savior of the world uh, into history. 
if the world should have known him naturally, Israel should have known him biblically. Everything in the Old Testament was preparing for him, and he arrives in the fullness of time. And as we read this morning in the Gospel of Matthew, it never fails to strike me, here comes these wise men from outside of Israel seeking the Messiah. And the leaders of God's people are clueless. Even when Herod, that wicked, wicked king, comes and asks them, they go, well, yeah, here it is right here. They give everything up. Just so remarkable. Um, As Israel rejected the written word, so they reject the incarnate word. As Jesus comes into this world, the Son of God, and his ministry is, is given in such fullness, and they said no, even to the point of putting him to death. That parable that Jesus gives in the last week of his ministry is so pivotal to understand your Old and New Testaments, where God has rented out his vineyard to this people, and this people continued to fail to respond to God's overtures. He sent them his servants and expected a response from them of reception and love and service. But instead, they they took God's servants and they beat them and, and cast them out, and some they killed and some they stoned and so forth. And then finally, the Lord of the vineyard says, I will send them my son. They will surely respect my son. But when they see the son, they say, here he is. Let's kill him and take everything for ourselves. That's, that covers the whole of the Bible. He is killed, but yet he has made the head of the corner in Matthew 21, 33 through 46. How could they do this? Their Bibles, every step of the way, pointing to the son of God, pointing to Jesus. Look forward to the seed of the woman. Look forward to this second Noah who's going to rescue a family out of a horrific flood of fire. Here comes the son of Abraham. There must be this seed who is going to be the savior of the world, a priest after the order of Melchizedek, the lion of the tribe of Judah, a prophet like unto Moses, another Joshua to give everlasting rest, David's greatest son, Isaiah's servant, Jeremiah's branch, Ezekiel's true son of man, and Daniel's king. Every page that you turn in the Old Testament pointing to him. He had already been with them in the Old Testament. Salvation from Egypt. He was the the rock that gave them the water. Provision in the wilderness. Conquest in Joshua. Deliverers through the judges. Protection by kings. Promises by prophets. Fellowship through the priests. The tabernacle and the ministry of the sacrifices. The whole book of Hebrews opens up this promise and this fulfillment. Why, how could they reject him? He came to his own, and his own received him not. How could this possibly be? Well, the answer is that they loved their own ways. They had been loving their own ways in the Old Testament. They kept on twisting the truth of the word of God, even into the New Testament, twisting circumcision, for instance, into something that it was never intended to be. They were addicted to their own righteousness, addicted to their own praise. Their sin of pride and of trust in their traditions blinded them, and that's what sin always does. 
whether it's a, a self-righteous kind of sin or whether it's just an out-and-out hedonistic uh, immorality, it blinds, it binds, it, it blocks us from being able to come and to receive. Jesus called them to light out of their darkness, but they would not. When John played a funeral dirge and his very hard and strong preaching, don't you dare say that you're a child of Abraham. God can raise from these stones children for himself in that way. Or when Jesus played a festive wedding tune with the riches of his healings and his, his, his powerful and soothing words, they would not turn. They would not turn when Peter preached with Pentecostal power, a wonders being done by the apostles. They would not even repent when they had a Saul of Tarsus raised, as it were, resurrected from a tomb of Phariseeism, one who was the Pharisee of the Pharisees, and yet was turned on his head and said, Jesus is the Messiah. Would they turn then? No. Dear ones, this is the rejection. This is verses 10 and 11. And thankfully, we move on to happier ground in 12 and 13. But... As many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, who were born of God. Here is adoption. Here is regeneration, being born again. The reception of the word in verse 12, those who do receive him are styled those who believe at the end of that verse, even to those who believe in his name. What does it mean to receive Jesus? It means to believe. It means to have faith in him. Believing is explanatory of receiving. If you say, I, I, I receive Jesus by faith, you're really speaking redundantly. To receive Jesus is to exercise faith in him. And what is faith? Well, faith is not a historical faith. Demons have a historical faith. They believe in the existence of God and they tremble, James 2.19. Faith is not some kind of a temporal, Lord, get me out of this mess. Get me out of this circumstance that I'm in. The stony ground hearers in Matthew 13 had some kind of a temporary faith that was not saving faith. True saving faith brings us to Christ the Savior and brings Christ to us. It includes knowledge. It includes an understanding of who Jesus is and what he has done for sinners like you. But there's more to it than that. It includes assent and consent uh, you're recognizing that he's able to save. You see other people who've been touched by his healing hand, who've been redeemed, their sins forgiven, and their lives changed. And you say, this must be true, but there has to be something more. Faith is a whole-souled persuasion and trust upon Christ as your personal redeemer. Um, you know, Jesus asked the blind man, what do you want me to do for you? He made him respond through that diagnostic question. I want my sight. What do you want when you come to Jesus? Lord Jesus, I want you to save me from myself. Save me from the wrath of God. Save me from my sins. Save me from all that which would separate me from my Father in heaven. We are to trust in his name, it says. That is, uh, to believe into his name is the force of the Greek. 
His name is all that he is. He is directing us not to what is his outside of him, but to himself as the whole Christ. We cannot divide him like his cloak was, a, was a threatened to be done. No cafeteria approach, which so many people frequently come to Jesus that way. But we come to this full Christ to receive all that we need for salvation. John Flavel, the Puritan, observes that God is in Christ. The authority of God is in him. The wisdom of God is there for you. The fullness of the Spirit is found in him. The righteousness of God in Christ. The love of God is found in him. The mercies, the compassions of this wonderful Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. All sanctification, all purity is is found in him. Salvation is in Christ, and there is no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. The glory of God is in Christ. There is forgiveness in him. And then the second half of the verse, the right to become the children of God. John uses the Greek word technon, which emphasizes more the source rather than the status, like Paul's use of huios. Uh, what is that source of being made, having the right to be children of God? That would be the Lord Jesus himself. We know that this status of being adopted through Christ from the Father has an already not yet quality about it. One of our favorite verses has to be 1 John chapter 3, 1 and 2. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the children of God. And we are. It does not yet appear what we shall be, but when he appears, we shall be like him. We bless God for that. So the Lord here uses the word right. These ones who receive, who believe in the name of Christ, have been given the right to become the children of God. There are two words that are generally translated right from the, from the Greek. There's the word dunamis, which is usually translated, better translated, power, and the word uh, exousias, which is authority. It's out of itself. Um, Here's a, somewhat of a crass illustration to show the difference between the, drew, the two. There's a, there's a comedian. He's a drunk comedian. Or maybe he's just, a, he's just a comedian who's drunk all the time. One of the two. Um, there's really not much difference there. He said um, he got pulled over, and he said the policeman said to him that he had the right to remain silent. But he didn't have the ability So he started talking back to the cop and got in all kinds of trouble. The right is the authority, the title to being a child of God from Christ. Christ makes us uh, to be uh, joint heirs with him and thus heirs to God. It's the title of heaven. It's the title of glory. And this is the highest privilege possible that we are adopted and called children of the Most High. Jesus, you have to recognize, came to bring something even greater than a pardon for all of our sins. Something better than what Adam had possessed in paradise, which was forfeited. Something superior even to what the holy angels possess, even though they've never sinned. As we are made children of God. That's the the riches that are here. Jesus, the, the blessings of authority 
uh, by authority are given to us to be adopted and reckoned with all the privileges of being uh, God's family. But what would it be if we had the privileges, the right, the standing, as it were, but internally we remained children of the wicked one? Our hearts were still dead in trespasses and sins, still hardened against God. What a miserable situation that would be to be going to heaven with a nature that was contrary to heaven and yet having the right to heaven. And we see how Christ's salvation then covers all of the bases. And this touches then on the regeneration of believers in verse 13. After faith, by faith, we are freely given the right. It's ours to be called the children of God. But before faith, we are freely born of God. Notice the the language there, who were born. Those believe or receive at Christ have been born again. Before faith, we are freely born. On our side, it's simple childlike faith in him. On his side, there's a profound regeneration in our lives. The Greek word palingenesis, to be genesis again. It's used only two times in the scriptures, Titus 3 and verse 5. And Matthew 19, 28 talks about the whole creation being palingenesis. There's a sense in which your new birth is a slice of the new heavens and the new earth that's coming. Those two are connected. So what is is implied here? What's implied by being born? Well, there's a brand new beginning. As in John 3, we must be born again. Then born of what? Born of who? Well, there are three knots that are laid out here who were born not of blood. That seems to indicate hereditary lines, ancestry. I am going to heaven because I am of Israel, or I'm of this party within Israel. I'm of Abraham as my father. Or in the New Testament era, I'm in some kind of a Christian lineage. There have been those who have said, of course I'm going to heaven. I'm Roman Catholic. Of course I'm going to heaven. I'm Protestant, or I'm Lutheran, or I'm Presbyterian. Grace does not run in our bloodlines. Grace runs in Christ's shed blood, period. So it's not by some kind of a a heritage that you have by which you are redeemed, as as advantageous a heritage may be. Secondly, it's not by the will of the flesh. That is not of our own selves. This word flesh is used probably slightly differently than Paul's use of sarks, in Paul, it's, it's enmity and, and anti-regeneration. But in, in John, it has more the idea of the Old Testament uh, view of all flesh being weak, all flesh being broken, you see. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, natural man, fallen, weak, spiritually unable. We can't produce this in ourselves. And then thirdly, nor by the will of man. Nobody else can do this for us um, to provide faith that comes from a new birth. No preacher, no pastor, no evangelist, no priest can regenerate. It's the work of the Spirit. Uh, Believers may serve as midwives, as Paul likened himself, laboring to see Christ formed in the Galatians again. But it is the Lord alone who is the master here, and no one can claim that title but him. Everybody who's born again is born again by the Lord Jesus and by his spirit. No, we are born not of these things, but rather born of God is the last phrase. God does it by his spirit through his son. 
By the will of God, God births us with a new heart, a new nature, becoming new creatures. God does this, and no other. Listen to all of the I wills that are found in that famous passage at prophecy of Ezekiel in chapter 36. I will take you from among the nations, gather you out of all countries, bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. There is flesh being used actually in a good way. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And now you will keep my judgments and do them. Then you shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers. You shall be my people and I will be your God. I will deliver you from all your uncleanness. I will call for the grain and multiply it and bring no famine upon you. And I will multiply the fruit of your trees and the increase of your fields so that you need never again bear the reproach of famine among the nations. Ezekiel 36, 24 through 30. This is fabulous. God has taken our salvation entirely into his own hands. This is marvelous, the way in which this inward change is described in Scripture so richly a work that is magnificent, that you have experienced the Spirit making you a new creature, a heavenly creature, ultimately a supernatural creature. It is styled a quickening, a giving of life, a forming of a new person, a new creation, his workmanship, a birth, a spiritual baptism, a raising from the dead spiritually, a new heart, a new spirit, a new creation in Christ, a new man with a new nature. Now we recognize here then that faith is not first. Without the new birth, there's no faith. We cannot do even what is most basic and vital, that is trust in Jesus because of our being dead in trespasses and sins. We are indeed saved all by grace, beginning to end. You came to Christ, not of yourself, but of him you still would otherwise reject him like the world and the hard-hearted Israelites if God did not work in you. Now, some have seen this and say, well, this is just terrible. This is a, a limiting concept. This narrows our ability in evangelism that we have to wait upon the Lord to change minds, to change hearts. Are we to tell men who cannot of themselves come to Christ to come to Christ? Do we really have to wait upon the Spirit? Are we really to preach to these dead, dry bones in this way always? Yep. Just like in Ezekiel 37. It's not limiting. It's rather unlimiting. God is in the business of changing the most unlikely and reaching the most desperate. He is not hindered. He is not shorthanded. Men are dead, but he raises the dead. That sounds like a really great combination, doesn't it? Men are dead and will not come to God. They will not receive him. But God is in the business of raising the dead and giving faith to those who say, I will not. God is able to make anybody who's lifting their fist to heaven and saying, I will not come. God's able to make that person say, I will. He does it every day. He does it all the time. 
And he does it all because of his glorious work in his son. The word who was with God and was God became flesh and brought this fullness of grace by the way of the cross, brought such a glorious gospel to us. And that's our next message in verse 14, the glory of Christmas. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity, pleased with us in flesh to dwell, Jesus, our Emmanuel. Mild he lays his glory by, born that man no more may die, born to raise the sons of earth, born to give us second birth. Praise be to God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your mercies to us in Jesus and the fullness that is found in him. We thank you, Lord, that you've provided such glorious salvation on such easy terms. And yet at the same time, Lord, we're not even able to meet those easy terms apart from your wonderful supernatural work in our life. We thank you for the status of being called the children of God. And we are sons and daughters of the true God who are heirs of all things, who inherit the earth, who are uh, are to receive everything. And we thank you and bless you. Thank you for the matching new nature that is ours, the beginnings of that new nature, uh, looking forward to the time when we will be perfected, when we will sin no more. There will be no more darkness, no more iniquities, no more presence of the wicked one, no more fallen world, but all things complete. Oh, Lord, help us to lean forward to that. Help us to look upward to those things that are above, where Christ is at the right hand of God knowing, Lord, that we have been crucified with him and our life is hidden with our Redeemer who is bringing us to glory. In his name we pray, amen.